Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Uh, long, long time ago, not in a galaxy far, far away, but maybe in a county far, far away, I was a student pastor uh, right around that 2000. And that doesn't sound nearly as long ago as it actually is. Um, but, uh, but a lot's changed in 23 years uh, from, from when I was a student pastor. Back in those days, uh, <laughs> the kids didn't have smartphones or social media, and so you, you, actually, you actually had their attention. I don't know what they did to, to ignore me then. Now I know what they do to ignore us, but I don't, know what, I don't remember what they did in, in 2000 to ignore us. I guess they passed notes and snoozed. I don't know. Um, but for all that's different, there's some things that are still the same. Uh, there's an old saying in church life, if it's broken, blame the student pastor. And, and 95% of the time, you're probably not going to be wrong. Uh, <laughs> certainly was true for me. I remember one time we were doing a, a meal fundraiser, and it was probably spaghetti because it's always spaghetti. That's been, that's been a staple fundraiser as long as there have been student ministries. And the cleanup was underway, and as that was happening, I heard all kinds of commotion coming from the kitchen. And again, when you're a student pastor and you hear commotion coming from the kitchen, it's a good time to pause and, and go see what exactly has unfolded. And when I entered the kitchen, there was a giant blob of soap suds that was growing and spreading across the kitchen. Now, this was a First Baptist church, so it was a little bougie about some things. And they, they, were, they had two dishwashers in the kitchen. Uh, not, not like a deacon that was in there in his elbows up in sink water, like two real dishwashers. Well, it turns out that one of my lovely students didn't realize that there was a difference between the soap you put in the dishwasher and the soap you put in the sink. And truth be told, as a 21-year-old student pastor, I probably didn't know the difference either. So I'm thankful it was him and not me that actually made this mistake. So what he had done, he had grabbed the great big squeeze bottle of palm olive and he filled up the container, hit start, and walked away. And if you've never done this, please don't try this at home. Try this at your friend's house with their dishwasher. Don't try it in your own. Uh, that may have been the cleanest that kitchen had ever been because there were soap suds literally everywhere. It was a mountain of soap suds that had escaped from the dishwasher apart from anybody's watchful eye. Has anybody done that? Raise your hand. Test. Okay, we guys, appreciate your honesty this morning. God bless you. Uh, <laughs> we learned something that the dishwashers are helpful, but when you add liquid soap to the dishwasher, they become slightly less than helpful. When you stop and think about it, though, the kitchen's kind of a dangerous place. I mean, obviously, there's knives and sharp things and things you can burn yourself with and that sort of stuff. But, and honestly, a dishwasher producing a pile of suds isn't particularly dangerous. But it is an example of what can happen when you accidentally put things together that don't belong. For example, bleach. Bleach is a staple in most homes. It's a disinfectant, a laundry booster, those kind of things. But bleach doesn't play well with others. Mix it with the wrong thing and you're releasing toxic chlorine gas into your house. 
mix it with rubbing alcohol, and you have created a compound known as chloroform. And if you don't know what that is, that's what the bad guys in movies use to, ki- to kidnap people with. Like they put it over their face and they ki- it puts them out and they kidnap them. Don't do this. Please don't do this. Parents, Google gives this information. So I'm not instructing us in anything that they don't already have access to. Uh, vinegar is another one. Vinegar is interesting. We use it for cleaning and consumption. But if you mix it with the wrong thing, for example, mix it with hydrogen peroxide, you've created a highly, highly corrosive acid that can cause lots of burning and damage. And so again, I would advise you to not do that. Make pickles with it, but please don't uh, use it for first aid with hydrogen peroxide. Uh, Here's another one, aluminum foil and toilet bowl cleaner. If these two are in close contact in your home, I'm pretty sure I don't wanna eat at your house because I can't understand why the two would be close together at your house. But if you put them together, you release a a, a pile of hydrogen gas, which is quite flammable and in the right context can be quite explosive. Again, parents, Google is is not your friend in this. There are all kinds of things your young people can learn on Google. And Mr. Davis may have some more things that he can teach in uh, in class. Who knows? (laughs) There's a fine line between between shop class and teaching explosives, right? Uh, Just a real fine line there. Um, if you can't tell, we've got a theme that we're working on here. Adding things to the wrong thing is unwise and can be downright dangerous. That's true in the kitchen and with cleaning and in the shop and all those sort of things. But we find out today that it's actually true in matters of faith as well. If you've got your Bible, hopefully you've already turned to Jeremiah. We are in the seventh chapter as we continue to work through Jeremiah's temple sermon. We're going to be in the seventh and eighth chapters today in Jeremiah chapter seven, beginning there in verse 30. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me as I read these words from Jeremiah chapter seven, beginning there in verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For there will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air, for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride for the land shall become a waste. At that time declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after and which they have sought and worshiped and they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenging text, Lord, the hard text, the things that, that say hard things. God, I thank you that you don't call us to a faith that is, a, that is always a, a walk through the park, Lord, but there are difficult things and difficult conversations and challenging texts that we have to turn to. I pray you'd help us today to understand it well and to put it to work properly in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, be seated. 
These are not the hardest words in scripture, believe it or not. There are some who are, they're, they're much worse, but this is a low point in our journey through the book of Jeremiah. It is a difficult spot, but it is one that is important for us to consider today. Jeremiah is still preaching his temple sermon as far as we can tell. He hasn't moved from where he has been positioned. He is telling these people what they don't want to hear. But there is no denying it. His preaching has taken a very, very dark turn. Not there's there's anything wrong with what he is saying, but he is dealing with what's proven to be some very difficult issues. I'd like to think that his listeners are kind of squirming in their seats. Because that, you know, when, when, the, when the word gets hot and, and we have conviction, maybe, maybe that affects us in some capacity. Um, but what we know about the nation at this time leads me to believe that nobody's really paying attention. It honestly reminds, I don't know if you guys have seen this guy that's been standing at the corner of Highway 27 and 2A. There's a dude that's been standing there and he has been there, I've seen him probably five or six days and I guess it's a Bible, I can't tell what he's got in his hands but it looks like he is, it looks like he is, he is preaching. And again, I don't know the man, I don't know what he's doing, I don't know what his heart is, I don't know what, what he is up to but it appears that he's doing some kind of street preaching but as I was looking at him, I was like, hey, nobody listen to this guy. You, you can't listen to it. You're at a busy, busy intersection. It's impossible to listen. You can't really, you don't have time to even roll your windows down and, and try to catch what he's saying. Uh, it's impossible to hear what that guy is, is up to. I know the other day he had his shirt off while he was preaching and that was interesting. Again, I don't know what he's doing, uh, but I can promise you that nobody's listening to him because where he is, it's impossible to hear what he has to say. But here's Jeremiah. He's preaching, but nobody's listening. And the excuse for Jeremiah is not that it's a busy, dangerous intersection, but that Jeremiah is dealing with hard-hearted people. But the indictment that he is bringing against the people is very, very clear. Jeremiah is going after the heart of the nation, and he is confronting the syncretism of the nation. That's not a word we hear very often, but it's exactly what's taking place in Jerusalem. We'll get to it in just a second. But it says in verse 30 there, for the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Remember what we're dealing with. The people of Judah have the temple. And for them, the temple is this, is this incredible good luck charm. He has talked to them about them using the temple as a good luck charm. They've almost got an incantation that they recite to just kind of prove that the temple is functioning as their good luck charm. As long as they've got the temple, they've got God's favor, and it doesn't matter what they're doing. The northern kingdom of Israel didn't have the temple and they fell to the Syrians. They didn't have the, the blessing of having God's presence there in the temple. The Jer Jerusalemites, the people from Judah said, we've got God in our box and as long as God's in the box, that keeps everyone safe. And with the temple came all the stuff of the temple. They had all of the sacrifices that go with it. They had all of the incense, all of the ceremony, all the gold, all the silver, all the stuff that went along with the temple. To the casual observer, the tourist walking through town to observe what was going on, they would have seen the temple and they would have seen the activity of the temple and they said, you know, these people, their spiritual life seems to be intact. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But the nation here, Judah, has committed a fatal error. They have taken the truth 
and they have customized the truth to suit their own desires. Instead of being made in God's image, the people are doing their dead level best to shape God into their image. And anytime we try to shape God into our image, we run into major, major problems. The word syncretism there, it's a helpful word because it's good to have it in our vocabulary because this is what happens when religious traditions begin to blend. You see this in a lot of developing countries, particularly with the Roman Catholic Church where that church had such an influence because in order to to make way into the community, they would often adopt the religious practices of the community so they were more favorable to those communities. But here we see what's taking place. They've got a little bit of this and a little bit of that, squishing it together, mixing it up, and before too long of doing this, you've got something that's both foreign but also somewhat familiar. In the temple of Yahweh, the temple of the Lord, you have the illusion of worshiping the one true God, but then you've got all these idols that are sprinkled in the mix. Now, God wants nothing to do with it. God calls these things detestable things. He wants nothing to do with these idols, which tells you exactly where God is on the matter. But the people undoubtedly believe that if we place these idols in the temple of the Lord, that, that they're placing all of their demonic idols and trying to placate all of their demonic idols by placing them in this sacred place of the temple. But what they were doing was they were conflating the worship of the one true God with the worship of their idols. And listen, that is a very foolish game to play. And God has very strong words for the people who would choose to do that. Now, the challenge of texts like this, you say, preacher, well, I don't have, we don't have a temple, we don't have any of these things, so, so how is this relevant to us today? And, and there's a challenge there, uh, how, we, how we get contemporary application for what is a very ancient, distant problem. And truth be told, we don't have a one-to-one equivalency here. It's not like we have our church and, and we bring our, our, our totem poles and set them up in the church, unless VBS were like a Pacific Northwest theme and we put totem poles up as decoration. But we don't do that. We don't bring our, our totem poles in. We don't bring our, our idol worship in. We don't do that. I mean, you look around and, and you see... You see nothing in here but Christian symbolism. You see the cross and, and, and you see, the, that, the, you see that, that element of Christian symbolism. You don't see idols and things like that in here. So it's not a one-to-one equivalency. But what we do have and what we do see that there is in this day and time, there is a corruption of fundamental truth, which is the same problem that they're dealing with here in Jeremiah. God said it should be this way and the people are coming along and they say, you know what? I don't particularly care for God's way. So let's customize it. Let's, let's make it more suitable to our own palate. I don't like the way that God has given this to us, so let's change it, let's tweak it, let's make it more enjoyable. We'll keep the stuff of worship and church and all that stuff, but we need to tweak some things. We need to make it better. And actually, that's something we are quite good at in this modern day and time. And what's interesting is we see it moving in two different directions. Both liberalism and legalism are both guilty of corrupting the truth. Now, truth be told, I pick on liberals a lot. So I'm gonna start in the other direction today and start with the legalists today. Because legalism excels at adding works to the gospel. Legalism excels at adding works to the gospel. You take something that's good and you add some stuff to it. 
and you end up breaking it when you start adding things to it. And I'll ask a question. This is a controversial question. You may disagree with me, but I, 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 I stand on this one. Who was the very first legalist in the Bible? It's a good question. You're running through the New Testament. You're reaching back into the Old Testament thinking, who in the world is the first legalist in the Bible? And what if I told you her name was Eve? Eve? She's the one that broke everything. How in the world is she a legalist? Well, go back to Genesis chapter three. You don't have to turn there. You know the story well. Genesis three, Eve has this catastrophic interaction with a talking serpent. Ladies, don't talk to talking snakes, please. Men, you probably shouldn't either. The serpent comes to Eve and he places a doubt in her mind with a simple question that he continues to ask us today. Did God really say? And, and that question of doubt is always one that, that, that we're, we're intrigued by. I don't know, did God really say that? Now the smart Christian's gonna go to his Bible and say, let's see what God really said. So did God really say, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, Eve replies and she gives almost the right answer. She says in Genesis 3, verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, in verse 3, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The problem is that's not what God said. It's what Eve said but it's not what God said. It's just a subtle change. Oh, it's such a subtle change. But in her reply to the serpent, Eve added five words to God's instructions. She added five words to God's purpose and plan. God never said, neither shall you touch it. God never said that. Now, to be fair, I would imagine that Adam and Eve probably had a conversation. Adam says, I've been here a while, honey. Let me tell you how this works. Everything here is good to eat. Everything here is delicious. I've tasted it. That tree over there, man, it's got the best fruit. But there is a tree in the midst of the garden. And God said, we can't eat that fruit. And Eve said, well, what happens if we eat that fruit? Honey, you don't want to know. Well, how do we make sure we don't eat that fruit? And they said, you know, if we just agree not to touch the fruit, if we just agree that we won't even touch the fruit of that tree, then that's a, that's a guarantee that we're not gonna eat it because you're gonna be hard-pressed to eat something if you can't touch it. That's a challenge. And so in my mind's movie, I picture Adam and Eve saying, let's put a fence up around the tree to make sure that we don't mess this up. Again, was that wise? Absolutely, that was wise. I think that was a wise move. Adam and Eve did what I call limit their freedom. They limited their freedom to protect themselves from dangerous error. And there's nothing wrong with that. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you, your family, agreeing to limit your freedom to protect yourself from any number of spiritual errors. There's nothing wrong with that. For example, you might say, in my family, we're gonna be home on Saturday nights and we're gonna be in bed at a decent hour because we wanna make sure that we're able to come to worship on Sunday. Now, there's nothing that says you gotta be home at a certain time in a certain place on Saturday night, but you as a family say, you know what? Sunday morning's important, so we're gonna limit our Saturday freedom to make sure that Sunday always happens for us. 
there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, nor is there anything wrong with the person who chooses to, to, to stay out at the restaurant a little later on Saturday night. There's nothing wrong with that. You've limited your freedom to protect yourself from error. And there's wisdom there. But let's be clear. That is our decision to limit our, wisdom, or limit our freedom, not us saying that God's making us do this. And what Eve does is, is I believe they limited their freedom, but they also said, but God said not to do this. And we've taken a preference and we've elevated it to a priority. We've taken a decision that they made, perhaps, and we've elevated it to a requirement. And what happens is that Eve puts words in God's mouth that God never said. Now, what happens? Legalism takes matters of preference and turns them into requirements. And one of the ways you can see that so clearly, particularly in our region, and again, this is not to pick on anybody or anything, but we see this show up in matters of Bible translation all the time. We've had guests get up and leave our services over Bible translation before. We have seen that happen before. If you ask me about Bible translations, I'm gonna give you some opinions and I'm gonna give you some options. And I'm certainly not gonna be dogmatic about it because there are good translations and there are translations you probably should avoid. If you're using the message as your, as your go-to Bible to read, to understand, that's probably not a great place to go. Nothing wrong with consulting it, but if it's your standard devotional text, yeah, choose something a little differently. But among those reliable translations, I don't really care what translation you've got. And here's the thing. The Bible doesn't sanction one version over the other version. And if the Bible doesn't sanction it, then who am I to say I should sanction it? I'm not in a position to make that decision. But what I do care about is this. The Bible isn't doing anybody any good if you can't understand it. It's not helping you at all if you can't understand what it's saying. The, the NASB, for example, is probably the most accurate translation that's out there, but it's also written on a college level. And so I'm not gonna go back here to Miss Samantha, who's doing a great job with our kids' ministry, give her a box of NASB Bibles and say, all right, Miss Samantha, you put this in the hands of all of our young readers so they've got a copy of the Bible that they can understand. Because guess what? Seven-year-olds who are just learning to read aren't reading the Bible on a college level just yet. And so it's not helping them if they can't understand it. I want to get a copy of the Bible in their hands that they can actually understand. I prefer the English Standard Version. You might prefer something else. And guess what? That's a-okay with me. It doesn't affect me in one bit. I can't condemn you either if you prefer something over what I prefer. But there's a lot of preachers who will elevate Bible translations to a gospel issue. And sadly, there are some who would question my fidelity to truth because I prefer the English Standard Version over some other version of the Bible. And that's the reality of the day in which we live, particularly in the region in which we live. And that's a really clear-cut example. While I was in seminary, I worked with a guy that confronted me about baptism. He believed that the only way you could baptize somebody was to say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. Great. If you baptized him, some, you did that, that's wonderful, that's fantastic. But he said, what do you say? I said, well, I say when I baptize somebody, I baptize, baptize somebody in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he said, he said you're a heretic. Oh, <laughs> buddy, we just jumped the shark on this one. We went, from, we went from we don't say the same thing to I'm a heretic, you're questioning the legitimacy of my conversion because I say the Trinity instead of just Jesus? And he truly believed that I was a non-believer 
because of a baptismal creed or a baptismal statement. And, and this is what legalism does. It takes preferences and elevates them to priorities or even regulations that have to be followed. And the New Testament is constantly fighting these issues, whether it's Sabbath keeping or kosher food or circumcision or clean versus unclean. Paul spills a lot of ink confronting these matters. One of his most convincing arguments is in Colossians chapter two, uh, beginning in verse 20. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, you can do this. There's nothing wrong if you want to do that, but it's not going to help you grow closer to the Lord. It's not going to stop you as you try to do battle with your flesh. It's not going to help you overcome that. Those regulations aren't helping anybody. They're not solving the real problem. You can, hand, you can do not handle, do not taste, do not touch all day long, but you're not addressing the root issues. Paul goes on in chapter three of Colossians in verse five to deal with the real issues. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put, away all, put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. See the difference? That's getting to the heart of our sin issues. The other stuff is just adding regulations to our lives that don't actually address the sin issues that we're struggling with. One is legalism and one is gospel. And what Paul is dealing with here is not legalism. What Paul is sharing is gospel. And any time we start adding to the gospel, we're corrupting the truth. Anytime we add requirements to the gospel, we're corrupting the truth. I once heard a preacher summarize it this way with a very simple, easy to remember formula. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. It isn't good news if it's Jesus plus a Bible translation. It isn't good news if it's Jesus plus a dress code. It isn't good news if it's Jesus plus dietary restrictions. It isn't good news if it's Jesus plus something else. That is gospel plus works. It is not the gospel. And we are saved not by our works. We are saved by God's grace, lest anyone should boast. That's what legalism does. The other side of the equation, though, is what we call liberalism, and it takes the opposite approach, but the outcome is exactly the same. It's a corrupted version of the gospel. Legalists try to add stuff to protect the truth. Liberalism, liberalism customizes the truth in order to shape God into its own image. And we are seeing the effects of this in our contemporary moment, particularly with all the drama surrounding uh, like the United Methodist Church. We need to pray for that denomination because it is embroiled in a terrible, terrible situation right now. There is a sorting that is taking place, even in our own community. Some congregations go one way, other congregations are going a different way. 
And it ultimately all comes down to a simple question. Do we believe all of what God says or just some of what God says? It's very shaky ground for fallen human beings to come to the conclusion, I don't believe all of what God says. Because when me as a fallen human being come to the conclusion that I don't believe all of what God says, then I become the arbiter of truth. It becomes me and my responsibility to decide that that what is in this book is true or what is in this book is false. And listen to me, we're all gonna come to different conclusions if we're all individually arbiters of the truth. And when you start to have that situation unfold, you're no longer gonna be in unity. You're no longer gonna be able to walk in truth because none of us are qualified to decide, yeah, I'm gonna throw out what God said here. That's what Judah was doing in Jeremiah's day. They were customizing their worship of the Lord with some other options to try to soften the exclusivity of this relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All that sacrifice, all that devotion, It's a little oppressive and intolerant, if you ask me. We need to sprinkle just a little bit of Baal worship, a little bit of Molech worship to the mix so we can have a religion that's quite honestly more enjoyable. Because all this oppressive stuff about sacrifice and and faithfulness, it's hard to do that. So let's have something that makes it a little more fun. It isn't hard to see this conversation happening in churches and denominations all over our nation today. Many of these matters have boiled over into political fights as well, which is really an impressive strategy for the enemy. Because let's take these biblical moral issues, make them political in nature so that biblically faithful churches will be more reluctant to speak on them. Because if the Supreme Court has addressed it, then the matter's settled, right? Because the Supreme Court is right in everything that it says and does. It's never got a decision wrong. It's never been wrong about anything. So if the Supreme Court has agreed on it, then we don't have to talk about it anymore. Here's the problem. The people who sit on that court are just as prone to sinfully deceive decisions as any other human institution. Jeremiah deals with an issue in these verses that's still being fought about today. The people of Judah had come to the conclusion, and this is so offensive, they've come to the conclusion that it was morally acceptable, even in the name of their religious activity, to sacrifice their children. I know that sometimes you can have a bad day with your kids. And sometimes in your mind, you think, I could kill that kid. That's not what you're talking about here. Because what we're talking about in Jeremiah 7 and 8, we're not talking about abortion. We're not talking about frustration with your children. What we're talking about here is full-blown infanticide. And Jeremiah has already made it clear to us in his book that that we have personhood when we are knit together in the womb. In Jeremiah chapter one, verse five, we understand we have value and worth and identity because God speaks to Jeremiah and says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah was, there was never a question about his value, his personhood, or his worth, just like there's never a question about any child that is knit together in his mother's womb about that child's personhood, value, and worth. That is a life that is worth protecting. Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock also happens to be the pastor of a very liberal Baptist church in Atlanta. And he's on the record many times over speaking out as an advocate for abortion. In fact, the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America PAC gives the senator a voting record of an F 
indicating that he has voted against every pro-life bill in his Senate term, even voting against legislation that would provide protections for children who survive abortion attempts. Now, I don't expect godless people to behave in God-fearing ways. I just don't. I don't. It's unreasonable to ask somebody who doesn't know the Lord, who doesn't fear the Lord, to behave as, as if they do. But I do expect people who open the Bible and proclaim, thus says the Lord, to have some sense about what the Lord has said. But this is the problem. I don't like that Jeremiah speaks out about child sacrifice, so I'm going to toss that out. I don't like that Jesus talked about hell, so I'm gonna throw that away. I don't like that Paul talks about the office of elder pastor being reserved for men, so I'm gonna get rid of that too. I don't like that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of its gross perversion, so I'm gonna make that go away as well. And all that is just one step removed from doing exactly what Judah was doing that is the subject of Jeremiah's sermon here. Let's toss out God's prohibition and replace it with something that will bless whatever God has prohibited. Let's get rid of God says, do not do this, and let's replace it with something that makes it okay so that that will guarantee God has to bless it. Well, that sounds like something else that's been in the news lately. Might as well mention what the Pope did last month. It's now okay in the Catholic Church for priests to bless same-sex unions. We're not gonna let them solemnize the marriage, but we're going to allow them to bless the union. And I'm gonna tell you, all I can hear is the prophet Isaiah crying out in Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I'm gonna ask a crazy question. How can you bless what God has prohibited? How can you bless what God has said not, you can't, that it's, that it's not allowed? Now, hear me in this. As Christians, we are called to love everyone, even those who were deceived and lost. We are absolutely called to love them and show the compassion of Christ to each and every single one. That is not in question here. So many times we get accused of being hateful and not caring, and that is not the call of Christ. The command of Christ is that we love and care for everyone, even the lost and deceived, and we show them compassion that they deserve as an image bearer of Christ. But loving someone is not the same as blessing and celebrating their choices that are opposed to God's purposes and God's revealed truth. Loving them and celebrating their sin is not the same thing. And just like legalism follows the formula, Jesus plus anything ruins everything, we might say that liberalism has a very similar formula. Jesus minus anything ruins everything. You can't compromise the truth of the word of God. You can't compromise the gospel. Well, listen, we can make all kinds of political compromises. You can build a wall or not build a wall. You can raise taxes or not raise taxes. You can do this or not do that. We can make all kinds of compromises in politics, but when it comes to the truth given to us in the word and in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you take something away from the gospel, you no longer have the gospel at all. 
a theologian from the last century, H. Richard Niebuhr, described the problem to a T. He said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That is the poison of liberalism. And Christians today need to know the truth so we can avoid adding to it and so we can clearly see when people are taking away from it. We need to make sure that we're developing a spirit of discernment and we, we develop discernment by faithfully practicing the spiritual disciplines that we know to be true. Personal Bible study, prayer and fasting, those are all critical elements. Those aren't just for Sunday. Those aren't just for when we feel like it. Those ought to be part of our regular spiritual diet as people who follow Jesus, that we are spending time in the word, that we are spending time in prayer, that we are fasting when the Lord would move us to do so. At the same time, we need to make sure that, that any of the supplemental content that we consume is worthy of our time and attention. I get sent books all the time from unknown sources. And they're usually self-published and you start reading through the first couple pages and it's like, oh boy, this is not worth my time or attention. It's not worth the, the, my mind's eye to give the, the time that it calls for. So we have to be careful that we're not consuming content that is not worthy of that. We also develop discernment in faithful community. Jeremiah's entire community was corrupt because of a wholesale departure from the truth. We can be thankful though that we live in a day and time where there are faithful, biblically-minded churches in our generation. Here at Chat Valley, we strive to be a faithful, biblically-minded church. Do we get it perfect every time? No, because we're fallen and we'll be the first people to admit that we're fallen people and we're working on it just like everybody else is. But we're striving to be faithful and biblically-minded. But that community must be more than just the church. We, we love everyone in this room, but if your community is, is only limited to this room and this gathering on Sunday morning, you are missing out. You need to be involved in a small group because we understand how easy it is for you to fly under the radar in this room. It is so easy to fly under the radar because you can show up at 10, 16, you can sit somewhere where nobody can get to you and you can exit through any number of doors and it's hard to catch you sometimes. And guess what? The people who don't want to be caught, don't get caught. You've got to be involved in a, a smaller group than, the, than just the, the large gathering of the church. You need to be involved in that Sunday school class so that there is a group of people that you can do life together to help you walk faithfully in your life and in with your family's life. People of Jeremiah's time had reached a point of no return. And the language of judgment is harsh in this text. But it's easy to understand why? Because God had pursued them for generations and they have rejected time and time again God's faithful pursuit. Thanks be to God that we lived under a different covenant and I believe there will always be faithful gospel preaching church until the ends of the ages because the darkness of judgment against sin has been poured out at the cross for all those who believe. That's not to say though that there won't be a future day of judgment for those who continue to reject the gospel and go their own way. And I think it's very clear that our generation is actively engaged in a fight for hearts and minds and souls. And that fight is only one with the truth of the gospel, not some version of the truth of the gospel, but the true gospel. Not some legalist version of truth, which elevates preference to the point of requirement, and not some liberal version of truth that adds compromise to the truth of God's word. 
but the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hard texts that call us to look at hard things. And Lord, I know that our tendency as people is to err. God, we are fallen human beings, and so we err. And sometimes, God, we, we conflate um, we conflate our preferences to a point of requirement, and we judge those who don't agree with us. At the same time, Lord, we, we try to compromise with the world around us, and, and we try to take away from the truth because sometimes the truth is hard. But I pray, Father, that we would not add to nor take away from the words of your scripture, that we would not add to or take away from the requirements that you give us, that we would seek to live lives that are faithful to put sin to death and to walk in, the, walk in the righteousness of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that there is salvation only found in Christ, that there is no other way that we can be saved. There is no other option. And I thank you, Lord, for the, the full truth of the gospel, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin. My sin and, your, and the sin of these people, Lord, he died to pay the penalty for that sin. And he was buried, and he rose again. He conquered death. And he is returning again. I thank you for the gospel truth of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that we are all sinners and we come short of the glory of God, but that in that you have provided a way that we can be saved through Christ. I am grateful for the gospel, the whole gospel, not just the parts that make us feel good. May we be faithful to examine our hearts and to see that we're walking in faithfulness and truth. I ask you to bless these people today and help us to be a church that walks in biblical truth not just some version of it. God, we love you and are grateful today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.